please. Did we just go out? We're good? Please turn to 1 John chapter 1. I'll be reading 1 John chapter 1 verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the Word of life. The life was manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let's pray. Father, may it be true that every one of us has fellowship with these apostles in Jesus, and thus we do have fellowship with You, our glorious Father, through Jesus Christ. To that end, help me as a teacher. Help my tongue speak what's here in the text. Help our minds hear it. Be penetrated by it. And let it go deep down into our hearts by that inward testimony of Your Holy Spirit to our persevering faith and the glory of the Lord Jesus. Amen. This morning we begin a new series. After much contemplation, I decided to call it First John. That's our agenda. To work through what God has said through the pen of the Apostle John. To hear it. To be convicted by it. To be encouraged by it. And to be matured by it. It takes about 18 minutes to read the whole thing through. We're going to spend probably at least 30 weeks, maybe a couple more than that, to work our way slowly through it. This morning is the introduction to the letter, where I'm going to ask three huge background questions to it. One, who wrote it? Secondly, why? Did he write it? In other words, what is the context? What was the problem going on that elicited this particular letter to the churches? And then that will lead thirdly to an overview of what the writer is doing. Okay, so the first question. Who wrote it? Well, John did. Because if you open up to 1 John, that's what it says. The first letter of John, or one John. 
But that's not Bible there. That's not the Scripture there. That's, that's the editor of putting the Scripture together and printing it up. That's their editorial on it. So, when you look at the text of 1 John itself, it does not say who wrote it. Like most of the New Testament letters do say who wrote it. Like Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the church at Corinth or to the church at Philippi. Not here. Out of the 21 letters in the New Testament, only 1 John and the book of Hebrews don't mention in the letter itself who wrote them. This letter also has no sender section. That's the part where a letter would begin. You can hear it with Paul. Paul, an apostle. And Timothy and Sosthenes, who are with me. Okay, those are the senders. It has no addressee section to whom the writing. To the church at Philippi or at Thessalonica. Blessed in God or something like that. And it has no greeting. That very familiar opening, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. None of that. It just starts off what we've heard from the beginning. Boom. But, as you read this letter, you will be struck that it is not some impersonal theological treatise. It has a very personal, fatherly touch there's a connection in the way he writes that says he knows these people and they know him when he says, My beloved children. And his style of writing made it very clear when they got the letter, they know exactly that is the original hearers who this letter is from. Okay, so now the question though. Why are we convinced, which I am, that it was the Apostle John, the son of Zebedee, who wrote this letter? Three main reasons. First, very early on, soon after John died, the last apostle to die at the very end of the first century, all the early church fathers absolutely affirmed that this letter was written by the Apostle John. Like his very personal protege, Polycarp, who was personally discipled by John himself. When he wrote in the year 110, it was clearly from the pen of John. Or Papias in 125. Or Irenaeus in about 160. Clement, Origen, all the early church fathers understood this letter to be written by the Apostle John. Secondly, because in this letter the writer identifies himself as a personal eyewitness of the life of Jesus Christ. See verse 1? That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the Word of life. He says, I'm one of those. We, the apostles. And thirdly, 
the similarity of this letter, you can feel it in the English, and it's clearly there in the original Greek. The similarity of this letter with the narrative of Jesus' life that we call the Gospel of John is striking in its verbal parallels, its vocabulary, this light versus darkness, love versus hate, death versus life, truth versus the lie. He is so black and white. Whoever wrote those two, 4th Gospel and 1st John, are st- He wrote the Gospel of John, he wrote this. Or whoever wrote this wrote the Gospel of John. And at the end of John, because John also doesn't say who wrote it, we read this. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And in the Gospel... He has already said that He, the writer, is the one who leaned up against Jesus at the Last Supper. He's the one who outran Peter to the tomb. He's the one to whom Jesus entrusted His mother from the cross. And we know it's got to be one of the inner circle three. Peter and those two brothers, James John, but we know it can't be Peter because he outran Peter. It can't be James, his brother. He was killed by Herod in AD 40 or so. This letter is written about 40 years later, 80 to about 95 AD. And so, what we're reading here is a letter that was written by the Apostle John, and it's written about 15 to 25 years after Peter is dead. Paul is dead. This is huge because what we will be encountering over these months is not just some religious ideas of a first century spiritual guru on how to get along in life, but it is a letter about the facts and about the reality of what the author himself has seen and encountered and touched and lived with and saw die and saw rise or counted him after his resurrection from the dead. And what he is writing in this letter is also, who are those people who have eternal life in Jesus? And who doesn't? So, John is the author and he writes with a very self-conscious authority in this letter. Authority of a person who is personally commissioned by the resurrected Lord Jesus. The second huge question then is, why did He write it? What's the context? What's going on in eighty eighty to eighty ninety five when it was written? And like listening to a phone conversation where you only hear the one person standing there and you can't hear the other line, you can kind of read between the lines. As we read this, you can read between the lines of the letter that there is an urgent situation of false teachers spewing false doctrine within the churches. For instance, look at chapter 2, 
verse 26, John clearly says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. And in the letter, he calls them false prophets. He calls them antichrist. He calls them liars. John is really stark in his writings. And so in this letter, the Apostle John is concerned with false doctrine that has to do mainly with the human and the divine natures of Jesus. This is what we, looking back in church history, call the beginning stages of what became a full-blown heresy later called Gnosticism within the church. Gnosticism, or the Gnostics, comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means to know, knowledge, enlightenment. They taught that their is this special revelation in your soul or in your mind, much like the New Age movement today. And at the core of their philosophy or understanding from the Greek world and its thought was that all physicality, all matter, all of the anything that's physical like our bodies in the universe is somehow bad in itself. Evil. Impure. And this led them to the contemplation of how this inferior, evil, physical world with physical bodies, how did it come to be from a good, divine, supreme being? And so those who would mix this philosophy with Christianity and the syncretism as it grew would speculate about the origins of everything that's physical. And therefore, by the end of the second century, in the early third century, the Gnostics taught the idea that there were a series of emanations from the supreme good deity breaking off and from that one another one and from that one another one until there was an emanation of small case deity that was remote enough from the beautiful perfect essence of spirituality that created this material world and so the doctrine goes something like this All the world that is matter or physical is evil. The God of the Old Testament, and to say it that way on purpose, because that's what they were teaching. The God of the Old Testament. It's not the God of Jesus, okay? The God of the Old Testament created this world with human bodies. He's not the supreme God, though. He's an inferior emanation or inferior creative power. And thus, any teaching about that supreme Spirit becoming a part of this evil, material world called the Incarnation, that is unacceptable to them. 
For them, it's impossible for the divine logos or word to live in impure physical bodies. And they denied the resurrection. The idea of resurrection, that's not salvation. Salvation is being free from your physical body forever. That's the goal. Because this body is nothing but a, an impure imprisonment of your immaterial soul. Okay. What I just gave you there is the full-blown Gnosticism, a heretical teaching within the church a century later than when John wrote this. But the beginning stages of it is what is happening by the end of the first century in what John is dealing with. And so, this then leads to the overview of 1 John of what he is trying to say in the context of these teachers and this denial of the Incarnation. It's why it leads this letter to be at its core a correction or an attack on those who attack the incarnation of Christ. Incarnate. To become enfleshed. For the Eternal One to become physical. Human. With a human soul and with a human body. See, Christianity is clear. And John is already dealing with this issue when he wrote his narrative of Jesus, the fourth Gospel, which he begins with, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God Himself, and He became flesh. He's making it really clear against this false teaching. Christianity is clear. The eternal Creator the second person, the Son of the Father, became identical to humanity. Became one of us. Soul and physical body. Alright, to get a taste there, what are they teaching here? What's John saying when we listen to the stuff he's going to be saying? There's a very close heresy to Gnosticism. It's, it's a little sect of it that became clearer later by the end of the second century called Docetism. It comes from the Greek word dokane, which means to seem. And these professing Christians start teaching that Jesus of Nazareth wasn't really physical. He just seemed. That's where you get the word docetic. Seemed to be physical like an Old Testament theophany where God would appear to Abraham like a man standing there. And that's what they would teach. Okay. That's not what these teachers that John's dealing with are saying. They're not denying the physical body of Jesus from Nazareth. The preacher. The carpenter. The one that they would affirm is the Messiah. What they're denying is that the Christ or the Logos or the eternal Spirit of the Supreme Being is identical to 
Jesus from Nazareth. That's what they're denying. They could have none of it. That the supreme being would become one with matter? No way, because matter is evil. They could not in any way see that the supreme being would become incarnate with flesh and physicality. Not to speak of mortality of Jesus that was susceptible to suffering and death itself. And so they were making a distinction between the humanity or the human body of Jesus and the Christ from heaven. Not identical. Christ only descended upon the human Jesus at His baptism and for His ministry. And departed before His suffering and His death. And so, to them, Christ was not one with that human carpenter from Nazareth. And He certainly, it certainly was not the divine essence person who ever died in the person of Jesus. And with that, with their distinction between matter, body, and the spirit world, came the doctrine of Christians. Christians live in bodies. And salvation is to be ultimately delivered from this material world. We needed to be released. And we're released by knowledge. Enlightenment. Gnostic or gnosis. Based upon the separation between the soul and the body, that knowledge, those who are spiritual, they're really in the know Those are the ones who are having fellowship with God. And as that doctrine began to spread in the early church, baptized church members who were starting to buy it were believing that fellowship with God in their knowledge was the only thing that mattered, irregardless of what they did in these bodies. We're getting saved from these. So, fornication and adultery and unrepentant, unloving acts in your life, in the body, are irrelevant to salvation. It is the knowledge that is relevant. And that's why we hear John say the kinds of things he says. How can you say you love God? When you don't love brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why he says, no, it is those who practice in this life, in this physicality, who practice righteousness, who are righteous, not what they're teaching. And love for other Christians is the sign of those who belong to God. 
So let me just give you a taste of this, because by the end of the second century, a little less than a hundred years later, one of the early church fathers, Irenaeus, just laid out to us, because they were dealing with this teaching that infiltrated the church. And he's going to refer to one of its main teachers named Serenthus. And so Irenaeus, at the end of the second century, writes, Serenthus taught that the world was not made by the primary God but by a certain power far separated from Him and at a distance from the principality who is supreme over the universe and ignorant of Him who is above all. Serenthus represented Jesus as having not been born of a virgin, but as being the son of Joseph and Mary according to the ordinary course of human generation. And moreover, after Jesus' baptism, Christ then descended upon Him in the form of a dove from the Supreme Ruler. And that then He proclaimed the unknown Father and performed miracles. But at last, He departed from Jesus And then Jesus suffered and rose again while Christ remained impassable, meaning not able to experience passions or suffering inasmuch as He, the Christ, was a spiritual being. End quote. And so, in this letter, John is reacting to this kind of teaching. And that's why he says, the one who does not acknowledge that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is a deceiver and an antichrist. This is why he declares, he came by water and he spilled his blood, physical, real human Blood. This is why in the letter John affirms the unity of this Christ with the Father. There's no secret way to get to the Father. If you don't have the Son enfleshed, you don't have the Father. John saw clearly that this false doctrine leads to false practice and thus to a disregard to true worship in true holy living, and ultimately leads to eternal destruction. John denies the dual standard of morality. I have knowledge. I have communion with the Spirit in the sky. And it doesn't matter how I live in my body down here. He says clearly, it is by doing righteousness Those are the ones who are righteous or born of God. He says clearly, if you keep on sinning unrepentantly, you do not know Him. As much as you people who love the idea of knowledge, gnosis, say you do. That's this letter. At the very core of what we're going to be confronted with, is the theological error that he is addressing that concerns the very person of Jesus. 
This doesn't mean that these false teachers deny that Jesus was Messiah. They use those terms. People who are in religions that claim Jesus, that are clearly unchristian, they use all the terms. They didn't deny His Messiahship. They denied His incarnation. They denied that the one true God became man. That's at the core. And this is why at the very beginning of the letter, there's this emphasis on the historical physicality of the Christ. We touched Him. We saw Him with our physical eyes. We lived with Him. Our ears on our head heard Him. He became matter. And He'll say it again in chapter 4. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. And so this letter of 1 John is about doctrine. And it's about what one believes and how their genuine faith is evidenced in their lives. Doctrine is that without which there is no ultimate Christianity. What we think as human beings will always dictate what we believe. And thus how we act and how we live. And those things. The doctrine, do you believe it really? And it affects the choices and decisions and the kind of lifestyle we leave. That's one whole ball of wax in John. It's one that leads to eternal life. In our day, there is a huge disconnect between doing church or living a Christian life over here and biblical doctrine over here. A friend of mine from Bible College just last week on Facebook, he's a missionary in Africa, he wanted lots of fellow Christians' opinion on how they deal with this issue. And here was this question that people could write on. Relationship with God or doctrine? It's a false dichotomy. There is a big deception in the air that Christianity can go on existing very long apart from clear biblical theology. It's a deception that, that says that relationship with God can be separated from biblical content. And so what we have before us 
for the next eight months or so is not some dry theological treatise, but it is a pastor's heart. John's heart for people that he knows and he's deeply concerned about. His primary objective with his pen is not to slaughter down all these false teachers. His primary objective is to protect his flock. And in His coming against the false doctrine, what we get is precious. Because John, I think, almost like, unlike any other New Testament writer, is so blatant, straightforward, clear. And His purpose is this. To bring every believer into a fuller assurance and confidence of your salvation. And so what we have here in His response to this doctrinal crisis and Christian living crisis, we have John's doctrine of assurance of salvation. And it is twofold. It has an objective side and it has a subjective experiential side. The objective side is the truth that happened in history in Jesus Christ that He and the others were eyewitnesses to. There's a message there about God becoming man, the incarnation, His atonement for sin and His resurrection. It's just there long before any of us were ever born. It is objective. It is the message. Then there's the subjective side. And that is the internal witness of God the Holy Spirit in the heart concerning that objective message to you. And so as we journey through this letter and we see John expounding both the objective truth of the Gospel, get it right, and your subjective. Am I one? We should let it hit us. We should let it sober us and know that this is the food for believers in our Christian walk to be constantly kept on track by. So, just for a few minutes, I want us to therefore in this context to feel the the overview of the the letter, the flow of what John is doing here. And there's these three main parts, I think, that are in his mind. One is this. Something happened in history. In the person of Jesus from Nazareth, who is the Christ, He was killed on a cross And He rose from the dead. He is the only salvation. That happened in history. And none of us were there. Which leads John to the second huge point in this letter. The reason we know is because God did not let that go unnoticed in any way. He's had apostles whom He chosen to be the eyewitnesses of it. And then the third thing is that internal testimony. So just get a feel for the first. 
the historical event of God the Son becoming a human being. Look at chapter 4, verses 9 to 10. John writes, In this, the love of God was made manifest. God loves us in the world? Yes, it's clear. It was made manifest among us. Listen to what he says. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a bloody sacrifice for our sins. A propitiation for our sins. He's saying that happened in human history. And that's why John opens the letter with verse 2 of chapter 1. The life was made manifest and we have seen it. And we testify to it. And we proclaim it to you. It is the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest in Jesus to us. Or in chapter 4, verse 2, And by this you know the Spirit of God. When you test teachers, he says this is how you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And that eternal Son in history shed His blood. Physical blood. Chapter 2, verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins. That happened in history. But how do any of us know about it? The answer is because God did not let it go. And notice, chose personal eyewitnesses and John is one. And he says in chapter 4, verse 14, and we have seen so it's not a religious idea here. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And they wrote it, they preached it, and they passed it down. And all that knowledge there so far, it happened and they testified to it, is the Gospel. It's the objective truth and truth statements that exist outside of any of us. And they must come to us and we must believe them in order to be saved. And that's what leads John to the third kind of knowledge. There's a different kind of knowledge than mere intellectual knowledge. It's the knowledge of knowing. Knowing because of God, the Holy Spirit, internally, just bringing us to, I keep my rational mind, I'm listening, I, I want to respect history and clear thinking and everything about it, and now I've heard it, I've weighed it, I know it's true, and I love it. 
That's what a Christian is. That's why John will say in chapter 2, verse 20, but Christian, you have been anointed by the Holy One and you have all knowledge. Or he goes on in chapter 2, but the anointing that you received from Him lives in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, and just as He has taught you, you abide in Him. Or He'll say in chapter 3, verse 24, whoever keeps His commandments abides in God. And God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us. How, John? By the Spirit whom He has given us. That's internal. Or in 4.13 he writes, By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us. How, John? Because He has given us. Us of His Spirit. Christianity is objective. It is the truth. It is historical truth that has happened absolutely apart from us and it sits in the drawers of hotel rooms all across this world right now placed there by the Gideon Foundation. And it's true whether anybody believes the message or not. But, nobody will have Christ Jesus as their personal Savior unless they have this inward testimony of the Holy Spirit who causes their hearts to see the truth with their minds and they have a deep-seated knowing the truth in Him who is true. This is exactly what the Apostle John's point is at the end of the letter when he writes in chapter 5, verses 6-9, to This is He who came by water and in His blood Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify. The Spirit and the water is humanity and His blood is death. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, The testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. And whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in Himself. That's where John's coming from. 
And this is why John, throughout this letter, will so easily say that when the Gospel goes forth, when clarity about Christ's humanity and divinity in one person, but two distinct natures goes forth, that He is the propitiation for our sins, and that there's a, there's a lifestyle that is evidenced by true saving faith because of the indwelling testimony of the Holy Spirit. This is why John so easily says that those who reject this message with their lips or with their lives have not been born of God. It's simple to Him. Because if they were born of God, according to John, if they were indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, the inner testimony then they would hear the truth the Holy Spirit has delivered through the apostles. And it would go ding, ding. The inner testimony would match up with the truth of what the apostles have given to us. When we hear about Christ, the Eternal One becoming a man in His incarnation. About His atoning death for our sin. About the forgiveness of sin and about the lifestyle of those who are called to Him. The inner testimony will convict and will match it. And so, this letter of 1 John is huge. It's huge because the foundation of Christianity has never changed. And that we are reading this letter in the 21st century as opposed to the 1st century when it was written makes no difference. The salvation of souls, the perseverance of souls in faith to the end is always directly connected to the historical evidence and interpretation of the apostles as they give it. Laid out here in this little letter of 1 John. And the rest of the New Testament writings. And the Hebrew Scriptures. And that's why in the 4th century or the 8th century, or the 12th century or the 16th century Reformation or now, the main duty of pastors is to follow the Apostle John and the other apostles and not follow the false teachers to not follow new and inventive ways of doctrine but to continually recall rehearse and unfold as John starts the letter what we have heard from the beginning the whole Bible. First John, you can read it in 18 minutes. It's our life. People today in 2014 actually have fellowship with God. It is amazing. They have a saving communion by God the Holy Spirit. And they have it only because we have the testimony. The book. The 66 books. We have the Apostle John and what he 
wrote, who lived with Him and was close to Jesus of Nazareth, who took care of His mother, who was encountered by Him in the resurrection. We hang on the words of the Holy Spirit through Him and the others. And one more thing. Notice at the end of the letter in chapter 5, if you turn there, according to the Apostle John, notice the purpose of the letter. Verse 13. I write these things to you who believe. What he's been saying. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Okay, why, John? Here's his purpose clause. So that you may know that you have eternal life. He wants believers to have a full assurance of their salvation. He wants sinners who believe in this Christ to go to bed at night confident that if they die, they're assured they'll be with Him and in the resurrection, they're one. John says, this is why I write. But think about it. That means, therefore, the contents of this book is aimed at believers to strengthen your assurance. But it also means it's got two sides to the sword. Because if it gives assurance to true believers, then it also shows that others with heretical doctrines and loveless, fruitless lives toward others do not have eternal life. You see, this is the big problem Well, throughout history. It's a real big problem today. The way that R.C. Sproul, the theologian, lays them out. There are only four kinds of people in the world, he says. There are those who are saved in Jesus. And right now, they're struggling with an assurance that they are saved, but they're saved nonetheless. But they're struggling with their assurance. Secondly, there are those who are not saved people. They are not in Christ, and they're not struggling with assurance. They know they're not saved. They don't proclaim to be saved. They have no confidence that they are. There's a third type. And that is those who are saved in Jesus. And they presently have a full assurance of it. That's the best place to live. That's where we should fight to live. But the real danger is the fourth category. There are many people who are unsaved. But they have full assurance that they are. And that's one reason this book of 1 John is vital to help them. To awaken them. So what we get in this letter, as I'm closing, 
is that John supplies us with three main tests to whether we belong to Christ. The first is theological. Christ is fully God and He is fully man. And to deny either is to be a non-Christian. The second test is moral. Whether the life we're living is going down one road or the other, whether it is the road of a repentant life towards Christ, or just going with the flow of our flesh, or the way He puts it in the letter, whether we are practicing righteousness and keeping His commandments, and that's our direction, or the other. And therefore, any claim to religious, mystical experience with God without any fruit in the life, it is to be rejected as false. And the third test, which is so stark in this letter, is whether we have any love for other Christians. Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And so as we work our way through this letter, these tests will be constant. And they're sharp. And they're biting. And together they are one big whole ball of wax that the Holy Spirit is producing in those who belong to Him. And to fail to pass these tests is to stand exposed. And it's meant to lead the soul to search itself out. And thus lead to repentance and to genuine faith in the one true Jesus Christ. And so let's let the letter... So let this letter of 1 John, which is such a precious gift to every church... Let it have its say. Let it have its say that is there on the pages week after week. And let's be in prayer for our own souls and for each other that the fruit, the trees of fruit will blossom in loving one another from the joy that is found in this one true gospel. Let's pray. So Father, as You let us know so clearly through Your servant John, none of this will happen to any degrees in our lives or continue to happen apart from the sustaining and working an inward conviction of Your Holy Spirit. And so we ask that You do this 
as You're doing it this morning, You continue to cause our hearts to see and love the truth and to be hearts that are so joyfully willing to be self-examining, to turn again and again to this glorious salvation. Because we do know from the get-go that any of us who claims to not be sinners is a liar. But we know that as we confess our sin, You are faithful and You are just in Your Son Jesus to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank You, Father. In the glory and to the glory of Your great Son, Jesus Christ, who became flesh for us. Amen.